Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Today we'll be hearing from three leaders in the field of prostate cancer research and clinical care. We have Dr. Kelly Parsons, Dr. Raina McKay, Dr. Christina Jamison joining us today to talk about prostate cancer. They'll be sharing their very unique perspectives as both clinicians and researchers in this field. Here at the Cancer Center, we're very fortunate to have a really uniquely collaborative culture where physicians and research faculty work very closely together to to accelerate advances in clinical care, in research, in really coming together to to advance new treatments and uh, understanding of the biology of many different cancers. So uh, for our uh, seminar today, we uh, really want to thank uh, members of the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center, the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine, the Cancer Center, and the team here for bringing together these outstanding speakers. Uh, So first with uh, we'll get on to introducing our first speaker. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Kelly Parsons here. Uh, he's a board-certified board urologist who specializes in diagnosing and treating prostate cancer. He directs a variety of clinical trials for the de- Department of Urology at the Moore's Cancer Center. He also leads the multidisciplinary prostate cancer clinic, which Dr. McKay and Dr. Jameson, I believe, are also involved in. Uh, Focused on delivering advanced cancer care through a coordinated team approach, this clinic enables men diagnosed with aggressive prostate cancer, either early stage or metastatic, to see him, a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist on the same day. Dr. Parsons has published over 130 scientific research articles, edited four medical textbooks, received multiple research grants, and serves as an editor on three scientific journals. He's won won numerous awards for his scientific research, lectures extensively across the U.S. and in Europe and Asia, and serves on several national committees. Dr. Parsons completed his residency and fellowship training at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore. He received uh, his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia and holds a Master of Health Science in Clinical Investigation from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, He's really an expert in nerve-sparing robotic surgery, cryosurgery, and magnetic resonance imaging of the prostate, and is internationally recognized for his work in prostate disease. He's been repeatedly named a top doctor in San Diego Magazine's Physicians of Exceptional Excellence annual survey performed in collaboration with the San Diego County Medical Society. He's also been recognized as one of America's best doctors. So thank you, and please join me in welcoming Dr. Parsons. Well, thank you very much. That was a very kind uh, introduction. I, I'm Dr. Kelly Parsons. Uh, I'm at the Morris Cancer Center. And, and I'm a urologist, which means that I'm a surgeon, but I'm also the doctor who is most uh, involved in actually detecting and diagnosing prostate cancer. And I think to that end, uh, in addition to just citing my extraordinary uh, colleagues who are, are part of the discussion today, Dr. Jamison, Dr. McKay. I, I couldn't uh, ask uh, for just a more outstanding group of uh, folks uh, to work with. Uh, I'm just so delighted to come to work uh, every day uh, with them. And the agenda, I think, along the lines of, of what I do, uh, my part in the team, uh, because I am a urologist, because I am someone who's involved in detecting and, and diagnosing prostate cancer, I did want to take a little bit of a step back 
uh, as an entryway into the conversation today. Uh, and first, talk about prostate cancer in general. So what is prostate cancer all about? How is it diagnosed? Secondly, talk a little bit more about the team approach uh, that was alluded to in the introduction. And uh, finally, uh, close with a uh, introduction uh, to uh, cutting edge surgery. And I put surgery in quotations there uh, because you'll, you'll, you'll see the significance uh, of the quotation marks a little bit uh, later. Uh, so first off, uh, prostate cancer, a primer. I, I think one of the things that I am asked the most about uh, as, as a urologist uh, by medical students, by, um, uh, by uh, folks who are not in the medical field is what exactly is the prostate gland? Uh, because we hear a lot about it, uh, especially in older men, but we don't really know what it does. Uh, well, the prostate is this very small uh, gland. It sits right here. It sits underneath the bladder. Uh, it sits behind the pelvic bone, it sits in front of the colon. Uh, the, the, the large intestine. Uh, and it's a gland that's involved with reproduction. It contributes to fertility. Uh, it produces most of the fluid uh, that's involved uh, in uh, semen, and it's important for allowing sperm to uh, live outside uh, the body. I think I've covered myself here with the entire political spectrum from right to left. This is a selection of men who uh, grappled with uh, prostate cancer or who have uh, grappled with prostate cancer over the course of their lives. And I think it points uh, to exactly uh, how uh, uh, common this disease is. And uh, incidentally, uh, the older folks in the audience will recognize that this is uh, General Schwarzkopf, Storming Norman, uh, Storming Norman rather, as he was known. I had to actually add Ben Stiller, the actor, to this slide uh, because I was giving this presentation to medical students year after year. And after a while, uh, I reached a point where none of the medical students knew who General Schwarzkopf was. Uh, ben Stiller, they're familiar with. And that's when the slide uh, had to be uh, brought up to date for the younger generations. Uh, but the lifetime risk of diagnosis is one in six. For the folks in the audience who, who've been touched by prostate cancer or who know folks who've been touched by prostate cancer, uh, you can see how incredibly uh, 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 common uh, it is. Well, what causes prostate cancer? Uh, well, first off, um, one thing that we know about prostate cancer is that it feeds on the male hormone testosterone. And this is just a schematic uh, that simply shows uh, that when you have um, uh, these signaling pathways from the brain starting up here, uh, going down this way uh, toward the prostate cancer cell, which is represented uh, here. All of these uh, pathways, all of these uh, 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 sorts of things result in the prostate cancer uh, feeding uh, on the male hormone testosterone. And when it feeds on testosterone, it grows. So if we take, in fact, testosterone away, which is what we do in certain situations in folks who have advanced cancers, uh, the prostate cancer will shrink and die. What about other things that we know are associated with an increased risk of, uh, of prostate cancer? Well, first, genetics, uh, uh, you know, certain genes that folks are, are born with, family history, uh, that can contribute to it. Uh, secondly, uh, age. Uh, so as folks get older, uh, the risk of prostate cancer goes up. So a 20-year-old man is not generally going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, but an 80-year-old man might. Uh, finally, uh, African ancestry. Uh, for reasons that are not entirely understood, African-American gentlemen are at increased risk of uh, being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Importantly, uh, if they are diagnosed and appropriately treated, uh, they have the same exact rates of cure 
uh, as uh, gentlemen of uh, other uh, races and ethnicities. What other kinds of things are at play? Well, obesity, uh, uh, red meats, uh, fatty foods, all of the things uh, uh, that uh, taste really good uh, that are associated with uh, uh, heart disease, all of these things uh, also seem to be linked uh, to uh, uh, an increased risk of uh, prostate cancer. Well, how is it diagnosed? I think anyone, uh, certainly uh, all of the men um, and their, uh, uh, and their uh, uh, families uh, are aware uh, who've been diagnosed uh, that it's, uh, off, it's usually diagnosed with a blood test, what's called a PSA blood test, uh, and then also a finger examination of the prostate. We call it a digital rectal examination. I think this is instructive uh, because a lot of men don't really understand uh, when we do a physical examination, why are we doing it? And what are we feeling? We're feeling the prostate right here. Uh, and nature has cut us a break uh, in that about 90% of the prostate cancers uh, actually occur on the backside of the prostate uh, where it can be detected uh, through a finger examination. And so uh, men who are interested who are in being screened for prostate cancer uh, should keep in mind that we do recommend uh, both the blood test uh, and uh, the finger examination, generally on an annual basis. Well, at UC San Diego, as we alluded to, we do believe in a team approach uh, for treating prostate cancer, and we are dedicated uh, to uh, that team approach. And we think it's very unique uh, in terms of what we're able to offer, certainly uh, to the community of San Diego. Uh, and it's in line uh, with many of the other big universities uh, across the uh, uh, country. The analogy that I like to use here is Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps, uh, as you know, is one of the most uh, successful Olympic athletes of all time. Uh, he won eight gold medals in a single uh, Olympics and people uh, tend to associate uh, the sport of swimming, uh, in fact, with Michael Phelps. What a lot of folks don't know is that nearly half of the medals that Michael Phelps has won, including all of the gold medals that he won uh, in Beijing, he won on relay teams, which means that he wasn't winning just alone by himself, swimming by himself. He was, win he was winning because he was swimming with three other athletes. Uh, and so I, I hold that up as, a, as, as what we strive for every day. Sure, everybody would like to be Michael Phelps individually, uh, but what we believe uh, at, at the UC San Diego Cancer Center uh, is that truly to be Michael Phelps, we need to work as a team. And that's how we get better every single day. And that's how we uh, put our patients first and treat our patients first every, every single day uh, by working as a team. Well, operationally, what does that mean? Uh, well, there are three general arms uh, in terms of treating prostate cancer. Uh, the first is uh, what our oncologists, uh, Dr. McKay, uh, use, which is uh, medications, uh, typically. Uh, the most common uh, medication, at least that folks I think are familiar with, uh, they always think of chemotherapy. Uh, we don't use chemotherapy uh, very often in prostate cancer, but there are other kinds of medications that we use in prostate cancer. So that would be the first arm. Uh, the second arm is what I do for a living, which is surgery. Uh, and the third arm is radiation. Uh, we uh, don't have any of our radiation oncology colleagues on the call today, uh, but uh, we work with the best uh, and they are an integral uh, part uh, of our team. And all of those uh, together, those three arms together, those three elements together, uh, Bl uh, blend uh, to uh, achieve uh, uh, the best chances of a cure, complete eradication of the prostate cancer. 
And so after uh, much uh, planning, um, we uh, achieved a point where we were ready to open our clinic, which we did on uh, January uh, 24th, 2020. Uh, this is our entire team, myself, Dr. McKay, uh, Dr. Rose, uh, our outstanding uh, nursing colleagues. Uh, and that was the first day we started seeing patients. Uh, and I'm proud to say uh, that we've since uh, uh, been able to expand our services. We have worked through the pandemic. Uh, we realize uh, that uh, while keeping our patients uh, safe is absolutely first and foremost, our, always our first priority. Uh, we, we also wanna be able to bring cancer care in a safe way uh, to the patients who need it the most, the cancer patients. And so we have been able to continue the clinic uh, even uh, uh, through the pandemic and occasionally what we'll be doing uh, is even doing it through telehealth, uh, through video visits. Uh, but these are the, some of the components, uh, the advantages of what we uh, believe the cancer clinic uh, is all about. Uh, well, at the center, it's all about better care and us trying to make care uh, better for our patients every single day. And some of the elements that go into that, some of the advantages of, of having a, a multidisciplinary clinic uh, are comprehensive uh, attention uh, in one setting, in an hour and a half long visit, uh, a visit, in fact, that's one visit with three of us, three separate doctors all seeing um, uh, folks at once, uh, and importantly, one treatment plan. So we come up with one treatment plan while folks are there, the three of us. I always like to tell folks, uh, our patients, uh, three heads are always better than one in terms of coming up with uh, prostate cancer treatments. Uh, and finally, uh, and we've heard this a lot from our patients, improved communication. Uh, because all three of us are there, all of our teams are there at once, and we're able to communicate things, I think, a lot more effectively uh, and a lot more clearly. Well, finally, cutting-edge surgery. Uh, and uh, I put surgery in quotations uh, simply because it really isn't necessarily surgery. Uh, this is something that I'm very excited about, something that we've greatly expanded uh, at UCSD over the last uh, two years in particular. Uh, this is former President Obama. Uh, he's sitting at uh, a robotic surgery uh, system, uh, and this was at the Cleveland Clinic, actually. And this is what we use at, at UCSD. It's the most common form uh, of, uh, of uh, what we call robotic surgery, using a ro robot to take out the prostate. Over here on the right, highly precise uh, instruments uh, that are directed depending on the surgeon's uh, hands. Very, very small instrumentation, very precise surgery, uh, very safe, uh, very effective. But to take it a step further, uh, what if we didn't even really do surgery? What if we left the prostate where it was uh, and we somehow treated the tumor without removing the entire prostate? And that's what we've been striving to do uh, at UC San Diego. The approach we favor is something called prostate cryoablation, which involves freezing the cancer uh, and the prostate around it. Uh, it's um, Medicare approved. Okay, uh, so meaning that uh, it's, it's not experimental. Uh, it's not something that patients have to pay for, certainly out of pocket. Um, and it can be used uh, in terms of initial therapy. So the, the first therapy that a patient gets, uh, it can be used as therapy if someone's had radiation previously, now the cancer is coming back. Uh, important to note though, that it's not for every single patient. The basic concept uh, is that uh, if this is the prostate here, that I'm circling uh, around. Uh, and this is a, a high-tech ultrasound probe that we use. We take very small needles, we put them directly through the skin into the prostate and we freeze the prostate with super cooled gases. And what we're able to do on top of that 
is to also use MRI imaging. So this is an MRI image and this orange color here, uh, that's where the tumor is. And we can use the MRI images in the operating room to actually guide ourselves to the tumor like a GPS, limit the area that we're treating and therefore limit the potential for side effects. And really, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I'm just, like I said at the beginning uh, of the talk, I'm just uh, so excited uh, to come to work here every day uh, to work uh, with, uh, my, uh, with my partners. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Parsons, for that fantastic overview of prostate cancer and what the therapeutic options are. Really phenomenal to see the collaborative work going on at the Cancer Center. And I'll move on now to our second speaker, Dr. Raina McKay, who's a board-certified medical oncologist who specializes in treating people with urogenital cancers, including bladder, kidney, prostate, and testicular cancer. Dr. McKay leads a multidisciplinary prostate cancer clinic together with Dr. Parsons, focused on delivering advanced cancer care through a coordinated team approach. This clinic enables men diagnosed with aggressive prostate cancer to see her and the team of doctors that Dr. Parsons mentioned uh, at the Moore's Cancer Center. As an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Dr. McKay instructs medical students, residents, and fellows at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Her research interests include the design and implementation of clinical trials to including novel biomarkers and therapeutic outcomes for patients with genitourinary malignancies. She serves as principal investigator on several early phase trials in kidney and prostate cancer. And as a clinical investigator, she's committed to advancements in cancer care that will improve the lives of cancer patients. Before joining UC San Diego Health, Dr. McKay was a medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center in Boston and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. McKay completed a fellowship in oncology hematology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School. She completed a residency in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, and Dr. McKay earned her medical degree at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville, Florida. She's board certified in internal medicine and medical oncology, and she works with the team in the multiple, multidisciplinary clinic, and we're really honored to have her here today to share her perspective as a clinician uh, in prostate cancer. So I'll turn it over to you, Dr. McKay. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Leslie. That was wonderful. Too kind of you. Um, so we're going to dive right in and switch gears a little bit, focusing on advancing the clinical application of genomics and prostate cancer and just really some of the exciting, um, you know, science that's been coming about, um, really diving into what are the drivers of this disease and how can we better target those drivers. Um, you are well familiar with this data. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men in the United States um, with its incidence peaking um, really in the early 90s with the introduction of PSA testing. Um, and you can sort of see sort of what's happened over time with regards to incidence and PSA. Um, but our patients are actually um, living longer and, and mortality is improving um, with regards to uh, prostate cancer with declining number of deaths. Um, and that's largely been due to improved detection strategies and better treatments to treat this disease, which has uh, certainly been exciting, but we're still not there yet. We still have um, a lot more to go um, to make sure that our patients are living longer, living better, and we can 
re relinquish this disease from its uh, existence. Um, Dr. Parsons um, alluded to this already, the backbone of systemic therapy for patients with advanced prostate cancer um, and even localized disease has really been um, hormonal therapy, therapy that works to decrease testosterone levels or block the action of testosterone. And this work um, was conducted by um, uh, Huggins and uh, Hodges back in uh, the 1940s actually led to the Nobel Prize being awarded um, to them for the discovery that um, uh, prostate cancer was uh, stimulated by testosterone and that taking away testosterone actually improved outcomes um, for patients. Um, and then, you know, nearly 75 years later, this is where the field is at. Um, lots of new agents entering into the treatment landscape, novel hormonal therapies, which have really populated how we treat the disease over the last 10 years, um, newer, hormone, newer chemotherapies, radium-223, a liquid radiopharmaceutical, uh, Provenge or Cipulusal-T, which is actually the first vaccine therapy to be approved for any solid tumor malignancy. Go figure. It was in prostate cancer. Um, and then most recently this year, I think breakthrough discoveries um, with the approvals of Olaparib and Rucaparib for men with advanced disease. And I really think this is opening up a huge box with regards to genomic sequencing and the potential that that has um, for patients, because really now the introduction of Olaparib and Rucaparib has cemented in uh, the ground um, that all men with advanced prostate cancer should undergo genomic profiling. And as we do more genomic profiling, we're going to understand um, what are the drivers of disease um, you know, uh, resistance and how can we better combat those? And so uh, you know, prostate cancer is treated with multimodality therapy. These are the systemic treatments, but also surgery, radiation, as you can see here. And so what are the uh, mechanisms that drive resistance for patients with advanced disease? And I like to break those down into what are strategies that are dependent on the androgen access um, and uh, signaling of testosterone um, and the androgen receptor, which is critically important to the um, spread of prostate cancer and the, the what we call pathogenesis of prostate cancer, and versus what are AR independent mechanisms of resistance. And so um, you can see that uh, delineated here on this uh, schema. Um, you can have, you can, you know, prostate cancers can mutate, it, mutate where they can have more androgen receptor. Um, so even a little bit of testosterone that's around can activate the androgen receptor. They can mutate so that new types of, um, you know, agents can turn on the receptor. So instead of testosterone, maybe uh, progesterone or other hormonal agents can turn on the receptor. Um, there can be other pathways that are activated um, outside of the androgen receptor. Um, there could be um, pumps that actually pump up, dr pump out drugs out of the cell. So you can't get the drug into the cell effectively. There can be ways that the cancer cell can figure out how to not die um, when you are giving it um, hormonal therapy or giving it um, chemotherapy. Um, there can be development of growth of blood vessels um, around the cancer cells that help it spread. So there's all these very interesting elaborate mechanisms of resistance to prostate cancer and the therapies that we that we give a prostate cancer to help you know um, uh, the, stop the spread of disease. And I think trying to understand how we can target each of these pathways is critically important to making our patients live longer. 
Um, so there's was a landmark study um, that was actually um, published in Cell in 2015. This was a huge collaborative effort, in part funded by the Prostate Cancer Foundation and Stand Up to Cancer, putting together large collaborative teams of scientists to try to better understand the genomic profiling in prostate cancer. And, and prostate cancer has sort of um, been a little bit behind the eight ball with regards to other tumors, and it's given the sheer nature of where the cancer spreads to. The cancer largely spreads to the bone, and that has been historically very problematic with regards to actually being able to biopsy a bone specimen, understand the genomic makeup of that disease, so we can figure out how to better target it. Um, but you know, this is, acad this is academic science at its best, you know, um, uh, scientists getting together, pathologists, radiation oncologists, um, surgeons, um, all coming together to really understand, well, how can we do this? How can we, how can we get it so that we can under, better understand um, what is driving the prostate cancer to grow? And so there was this large effort to sequence about 150 men who had metastatic prostate cancer and actually sample their, meta their, their metastases, sample their mets, and try to understand what is causing these cancers to grow or what is these what is causing these cancers to be responsive to any given therapy and from that work has led to uh, this work has led to the understanding that there are various mutations in advanced prostate cancer that drive prostate cancer growth and probably about 80% of prostate cancer prostate cancers actually harbor some sort of mutation that is potentially targetable by maybe not an FDA approved drug but or not a prostate cancer specific drug, but a drug that is on the market somewhere for some other disease um, or being um, developed. And um, one of the um, important revelations from this work has actually been better understanding the DNA repair pathway. So um, uh, from this large uh, series, we learned that about um, 20% to 30% of patients who have advanced prostate cancer actually have um, mutations in the way that that cancer repairs its DNA. And why that's important is because there are certain drugs that can be used to combat this exact um, molecular genotype. Additionally, what we learned is that one in 10 men who have advanced prostate cancer actually were born with something to predispose them to prostate cancer. Um, they had a hereditary syndrome inherited um, down through generations that predisposed them for the disease. So this is um, a, a landmark paper published by Pritchard and colleagues in 2016, where they literally took um, you know, up to 700 men with metastatic prostate cancer and isolated germline DNA from those individuals, meaning you know, just normal DNA in these patients, normal cells, not in their tumor cells, what they were born with, and actually showed that 12% um, of these patients actually were born with something to predispose them for the for disease. So why is that important? It's one important because there are drugs that we can use to, to block these alterations. Um, and two, it's important for cascade testing um, for men. And what I mean by cascade testing is that, um, you know, this could be something that could be very important for um, children, brothers, sisters. Um, it could predispose the daughters of men who have prostate cancer to breast cancer and other diseases. And so it's critically important that we are doing the testing so we can figure this out. Um, without doing the testing, we'll never know. And so 
you know, one in 10 men, again, have germline alterations um, that predispose them to prostate cancer, and probably one in 20 to 30 men with advanced disease have a DNA repair alteration that could potentially sensitize them to a drug such as a PARP inhibitor. So um, just this year, um, breakthrough um, FDA approvals for both Olaparib and Rucaparib for patients who have advanced prostate cancer with DNA repair alterations. And, you know, this is groundbreaking. This is the first time in prostate cancer that we have a drug or two drugs that are approved with a molecular indication, meaning if you fit into this molecular phenotype, you're going to potentially be exquisitely sensitive to this drug. And I think we are going to be seeing more of this in prostate cancer. And this, in essence, is what we call precision medicine. This is the power of precision medicine in prostate cancer, where instead of just giving one drug to everybody without any um, discrimination based on um, what is the underlying genomic makeup of that cancer, we're trying to um, personalize therapy and individualize therapy based on that patient's cancer's genetic makeup, um, where we give the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And by doing that, we hopefully improve efficacy, we decrease toxicity, um, and we're more prudent in our therapy selection for patients with advanced disease. So this is sort of where the field is going. Um, it's been very exciting to be a part of this um, scientific endeavor, which really at the end of the day is targeted at Again, making patients live longer, making patients live better. Um, and, uh, you know, how UCSD has contributed to this story is we've designed a series of uh, clinical trials that are focused on better understanding um, drivers of disease um, resistance and trying to put therapies together that make scientific sense so we can improve the effect of any one given therapy, trying to better personalize therapy for men with prostate cancer. So I highlight here the results of a large phase two study of Sevirinib and Olaparib that we recently conducted. This trial is fully accrued. Um, this study was um, you know, uh, uh, designed to actually figure out how to enhance the efficacy of the drug called Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor. And this data will actually be presented at um, uh, the GU-ASCO uh, symposium um, this coming um, uh, uh, February. We actually got invited to present an oral um, abstract presentation. I couldn't help but put in this curve um, demonstrating um, improved um, progression-free survival, meaning, in, meaning delaying the time that somebody would progress when they receive this combination compared to Olaparib alone. And so how can we you know, um, improve the lifespan of these drugs, make them work longer, work better in our patients. And sidirinib is a type of VEGF inhibitor. Um, and VEGF has a long story in prostate cancer, but um, there seems to be some synergistic effect with Olaparib. Um, I highlight here the results are the a study that's currently ongoing of radium-223 plus Olaparib. Radium-223 is a liquid radiopharmaceutical that actually delivers a small bit of radiation to um, bone metastases. Um, and uh, Olaparib 
um, and radiation actually causes DNA damage and elaborate actually impairs um, DNA repair. So we think that the two drugs in combination can actually result in improved efficacy. So we just finished the phase one portion of the study. We're about to launch the phase two portion, hopefully at the start of next year. This is a national study being led through um, the NCI, uh, which is the National Cancer Institute. So we're very excited about being able to come up with combinations that potentially are rationally designed um, to improve the efficacy of these drugs. So that's in the metastatic um, space. And this is kind of the, our pipeline around um, PARP inhibition. I do wanna highlight the result, the study that is about to launch now. This is uh, the phase two Neptune trial. Um, and as I stated earlier, patients with, um, you know, uh, metastatic prostate cancer, one in 10 of those individuals are at risk of a germline alteration alteration, maybe something that they are born with that predisposes them to prostate cancer that could sensitize them to elaborate. So taking that same concept, we said, well, why are we waiting until they get metastatic disease before we give them this drug? Why don't we give them this drug when they're still localized so they never get metastatic disease and we can cure them earlier? So we've designed this trial called the Neptune trial where we give patients upfront elaborate with hormonal therapy for six months, patients who have a germline alteration in their DNA repair pathway, so we suspect they would be very sensitive to this therapy, um, and um, you know, do this and then uh, remove their prostate and see what happens. The primary endpoint is pathologic response. Um, this is a small study. It's being, um, it's just 30 patients, 32 patients with 30 evaluable. It's being run through HCRN, which is a national. Um, you know, a uh, group um, that allows us to do this across multiple institutions. So we're hoping that this will open up at UCLA, Michigan, um, and Johns Hopkins, in addition to our institution. There was a similarly designed study in breast cancer, and this, um, in a similar patient population, I know breast cancer and prostate cancer are not the same thing, but um, that demonstrated a pathologic complete response, meaning you look at this, the breast specimen after they got surgery and see how much cancer is left behind, a 50% pathologic complete response rate. So we believe that actually by doing this strategy up front, we can potentially cure more patients with met, cure more prostate cancer. This is still early on. This is a, sort of a pilot proof of concept that yes, we can do this, but I think these are the kind of questions we're asking at um, UCSD. Segwaying with that, um, you know, uh, the most important thing actually, you know, predicated on this trial is, is we need to actually find who these individuals are that have these alterations. So in the localized setting, the prevalence rate of these alterations is probably um, one in 15 men, so or one in 20 men. But for that one in 15 or that one in 20, it's huge um, to find that alteration. So what we need to do to actually be successful for a trial like this, and what's actually been recommended by the NCCN guidelines, is actually every man that has high-risk prostate cancer that's localized should be offered germline testing. And it's something that we're not doing very well that we need to do better. So we've actually generated, created an educational initiative within the clinic. So every man that comes into our clinic that meets criteria for NCCN guideline germline testing is offered testing. So they we have like an educational one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, with a medical um, healthcare provider and a, pa a patient can then decide, yes, they wanna do the testing or no, they don't wanna do the testing. The goal is not that we get the test. The goal is that we educate patients, that patients make an educated decision and they can 
decide whether they want the test, um, but every man should be approached. And I think this is critically important for those um, minority patients, African-Americans, um, Hispanics, and um, making sure that this educational tool um, can suit the needs of all of our men with prostate cancer. Um, so other really exciting things that are happening, um, we are part of the Prostate Cancer Foundation N of One Working Group. We just recently published um, kind of a white paper in Nature Cancer about accelerating precision medicine for people with advanced prostate cancer. How can we learn from our exceptional responders and exceptional non-responders to therapy? How can we better personalize therapy? So um, in this paper, we actually lay out a uh, you know, the challenges and solutions for how we think we can accelerate precision medicine in prostate cancer uh, and the steps that are needed to, to, to get us there. Um, and we're working with the NCI on a natural history study where we actually do just this, trying to understand who the exceptional responders are, who the exceptional, exceptional non-responders to better personalize therapy. Dovetailing with those efforts, um, we've actually developed the Promise Consortium. Um, literally myself and couple of friends across the country were like, we need to be able to, we need to be able to aggregate our data um, and better um, understand what are the implications of some of the molecular under findings that we're getting back from our, you know, commercial tests that we had get done and, and how we can better learn from um, our patients and how we can understand how any one patient is responding to any given therapy. So we've actually generated a national registry um, right now. This literally launched in the midst of COVID over the summer. And right now we're up to over 700 patients. We've got um, 19 institutions that are involved and UCSD is on the steering committee. Um, and we are leading these efforts right here at UCSD. On the heels of all of this, Ultimately, yes, we need to learn more, but we need to get drug, we need to get better drugs into patients in a in a in a streamlined kind of way. So working with collaborators like Misha Beltran, Chuck Ryan, and the um, NCI Alliance team, we've actually put forward one of the first um, you know, basket umbrella studies in prostate cancer um, that is actually looking at trying to personalize therapy for men with advanced disease. So this was um, a trial um, that we presented at the Alliance. We just about two weeks ago, we presented it at the Prostate Cancer Task Force, where um, based on a patient's molecular alteration, they would be assigned to a drug arm that would that we would suspect would be associated with a response to treatment based on whatever biomarker they have. And so we think a trial like this is really going to be revolutionary for the field. And while right now this trial only has five arms, as we learn more and more drugs become available, we think we can expand this. We can add additional arms and we can have the trial. We can learn from the trial and learn from our patients, but also work to better personalize therapy. So, you know, my hope is that one day a trial like this will become a reality for patients with prostate cancer. And one day we won't be doing a trial like this for people with metastatic disease, but for people with localized disease, so they never become metastatic. But that's where the field I think is going, but we need to help get us there. Um, and then this is another trial that is currently in the works. It's um, actually pairing an immunotherapy with an angiogenic agent. There's been some very promising data around the combination of atezolizumab, which is an immunotherapy plus cabozantinib demonstrating response rates on the order of 30% for men with advanced disease. Um, we think nivolumab is a better drug than atezolizumab. And so we're doing a study with this, this drug combination. This is run through the Prostate Cancer Clinical Trials Consortium, um, funded through BMS um, and AstraZeneca. But the correlative work, we are um, still working on uh, building out the funding program for that. 
And then um, Chris Jamison, um, partner in crime in the lab. She's amazing, great researcher. Is um, you know we've had a lot of interest in the Wnt pathway, and I'm just putting this out as a teaser um, for a phase two study of serum tuzumab plus docetaxel. And, and serum tuzumab is pretty unique. It was actually developed at UCSF at UCSD by our own um, scientists and own investigators, and it actually targets um, cancer stemness. Um, and can't targets the cancer stem cell itself. And so we are pairing the combination of, of serumtuzumab with docetaxel in this heavy biomarker intense uh, trial so we can better understand, you know, who are the right patients for this kind of therapy? Who's, who's best gonna respond to a therapy like this? This trial is, um, you know, through basically putting together a, various resources from every angle that you can possibly imagine to get this trial to launch. Um, it's IRB approved and we're working on um, actually activating it for our patients. So um, this is sort of uh, up and coming. And, you know, our translational research goals, you know, aside from the clinical trials, you know, um, we really want to be able to build a systematic platform where we collect clinical data, we collect, uh, you know, specimens, we're able to annotate the specimens with clinical data so we can better learn about what's driving these cancers to grow um, and help overcome that resistance. And so this is sort of our infrastructure pipeline for translational um, work within the clinic, um, you know, identify patients, you, you know, patients may have been approached to participate in a lot of these um, you know, uh, translational um, efforts, but really at the end of the day, the intent is to, um, you know, link clinical data to molecular data um, and not just molecular data, it could even be immune data so we can better target therapies for men who have advanced prostate cancer. So um, kind of in conclusion, um, uh, you know, comprehensive molecular interrogation of patients with prostate cancer, we'll continue to refine our understanding of the disease pathogenesis. And really what's important is expanding the platform for precision medicine. Um, the goal is to demonstrate the clinical utility of next generation sequencing and enabling widespread adoption um, in the treatment of men with advanced prostate cancer. We have an amazing team that's here at UCSD, and we also work with leading collaborators across um, key institutions, um, also work with industry. It takes a village. It takes more than a village to get this work done, um, but really this is where the field is going. Um, and, and so excited to, to partner with, with you and partner with uh, everybody here, Dr. Parsons, Dr. Jameson and others um, to really get us to the next step, get us to the next level. So, so thank you. Thank you, Dr. McKay, for that amazing tour de force of the clinical trials that are going on in this field. I mean, really just fantastic work going on here and across the country. I mean, really exciting to hear about your uh, national registry and how that might be able to share, share advances across the nation. So very exciting things going on. With that, I'll move along to introduce Dr. Jameson. Uh, Dr. Christina Jameson received her uh, BSc honors from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and a PhD in molecular immunology with Dr. Ranjan Sen at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. She showed for the first time that the T cell receptor activates the uh, pathway NF-kappa B. Dr. Jameson did postdoctoral training at UC San Francisco with Dr. Uh, Dan Littman and uh, then Dr. Keith Yamamoto, where she showed that TCR signaling crosstalk alters the transcriptional function and output of the steroid hormone receptor uh, GR, thus inhibiting apoptosis or cell death. 
So she's done really amazing work in uh, genomics and uh, molecular biology in cancer. And she then joined uh, the University of California, Los Angeles as an assistant professor in the departments of urology and human genetics, where she initiated her work on bone metastatic prostate cancer and resistance to androgen receptor or AR targeted therapy. Dr. Jameson then moved to the University of California, San Diego to join the Department of Surgery and Urology, where she established new patient-derived xenograft models of bone metastatic prostate cancer, as well as a biorepository of surgical prostate cancer bone metastasis specimens. Dr. Jameson is the first to show that the bone niche is sufficient to support castration-resistant growth of prostate cancer. She identified gene networks associated with prostate cancer growth in the bone niche and established a co-culture model system demonstrating that bone marrow stromal cells uh, supported the castrate-resistant growth of prostate cancer cells. These findings supported the hypothesis that signaling pathways within the bone marrow microenvironment actually contribute to therapy-resistant re growth of cancers. Dr. Jameson is also new using new models of bone metastatic prostate cancer to develop molecularly targeted therapies and immunotherapies. So we're really honored to have her here to talk about the bench side of this field and how that integrates with the work on the clinical side that Dr. McKay and Dr. Parsons are doing. So thank you so much, Dr. Jameson, and I'll turn it over to you to uh, share your work with us. Great, thank you so much, Leslie. Uh, I miss seeing you. We're actually neighbors. Uh, our labs are right next to each other and we've known each other for a long time. Um, and so I miss seeing you some because of all this COVID restricted activity. Um, so it's really nice to see you. And thank you so much for the wonderful uh, introduction. Um, and, you know, I've had a tremendous uh, experience with my two colleagues, Dr. Kelly Parsons and Dr. Raina McKay. And so today I'm going to share with you a couple of the uh, research, research stories that um, have uh, developed at UCSD uh, that I've been fortunate to be part of, where we've taken work that was uh, developed, products developed here, tested them in our models, which we've developed using patient material, um, which are then much more um, uh, predictive of the responses. So let me just share my screen. So um, this was work that could not have been done anywhere else, only at UCSD. So I'm an associate professor here in the Department of Urology. I'm a PhD scientist, and I'm lucky to work with a fantastic team of uh, urologists uh, and uh, GU oncologists, as well as orthopedic surgeons, and then an amazing powerhouse of scientists here at UCSD. Uh, and so just for background on, my main focus has been on bone metastatic prostate cancer. And uh, as m many of you know already, prostate cancer, unfortunately, metastasizes. Uh, when it metastasizes, it uh, typically goes to the bone where it can cause a number of um, damages, uh, uh, pathologic um, damage such as intractable uh, bone pain, pathologic fractures, and spinal compression. There's currently no cure, but we're working hard on that. So I wanted to really address this um, aspect of prostate cancer um, in my research. And so I've worked uh, to establish um, models uh, using patient uh, bone metastases, and I worked very closely um, with uh, Dr. Anna Kalugian, who is in the La Jolla area, um, and she uh, does the repair surgery. So when the prostate cancer is growing in the bone, such as here in the femur, the right hip, um, 
the sometimes the the growth will cause a fracture and at that point uh, dr klugian comes in to do the repair and she'll put in you know uh, a, a half here it's a half hip replacement and at this time removes a lot of the uh, material uh, as much of the tumor material as she can this isn't a cure but it does help the patient tremendously it reduces the pain but most importantly the patient is still ambulatory but the, at this point um, this material um, is then uh, given over to me um, and donated and I, we're uh, so grateful to the patients who do this uh, donated to us. It's uh, not considered um, anything, uh, you know, they don't keep it for any other reason. So it's incredibly valuable for our research. And we take it back to the lab and immediately use the living tumor cells um, to put them into mouse models. Uh, we put this the human cells into mice that don't have an immune system so that the, the tumors, if they'll grow, they'll, they'll grow and the mouse immune system won't reject them. Um, we study the tumors themselves uh, using various genomic uh, transcriptomics. We've looked at the tumor growth in the bone uh, and the mouse bone, and it replicates many of the features uh, that we see in the patients. And we've set up um, mini tumors in culture, uh, also known as organoids, which you may have heard of. So with this um, fantastic collaboration with our colleagues, uh, we've been able to collect uh, so far 25 of these uh, large amounts of patient bone metastases. And we've established some serially transplantable models, which means you can take the tumor and grow it in uh, mice and be able to expand and have a renewable source of these tumor cells, which is incredibly uh, important. And now we've also set them up in cult in. Uh, organoid cultures so that we can now set up organoid cultures uh, from all the patient samples. Um, it takes, uh, a, it's harder to grow them in the mice, but now we can grow them in culture, um, bone metastases, as well as uh, the primary prostate cancer. So our strategy then has been to take uh, the bone metastases, uh, implant them into the mouse bone, and then study uh, their growth either in the bone or in a non-bone environment and compare the effectiveness of different therapies. So um, what we found is that the bone is a much more resistant environment. And this is to show that a lot of the genomic rearrangements that occur in the patient are also maintained. So for example, here in the uh, xenograft, xeno meaning foreign, graft into the mice with so human tumors growing in mice. Uh, one of the first things that we did was then to look at well, what um, genes are active in the bone environment, uh, in the patient and in these xenograft tumors, and what jumped out immediately was this um, gene called Wnt5A. Now, this makes a protein um, that um, binds to a receptor, which by happenstance, the lab right next to me had developed uh, a therapy for so um, by just being in the right environment at the right time, we were able to see that this um, ligand called, or gene uh, called Wnt5A, I know it's a funny name, Wnt5A, uh, which had been it bubbled up and was kind of becoming very well known in um, prostate cancer because it was found to be um, involved in bone metastatic prostate cancer that had become resistant to the angin deprivation therapy. Um, and so it turns out to be an important um, gene in um, somehow, you know, giving that ability of the prostate cancer to grow in the bone and be resistant. 
Um, and so because we saw it in our patients, in our models, and it had been discovered about the same time in the field as being a really important marker of this um, uh, aggressive disease, um, we decided to go ahead and put uh, our effort into testing this uh, therapeutic called Sertuzumab. And so what happens is here's Win5A, and it comes from another cell, and it can then uh, interact on the cell surface with these um, receptors called ROR1 and ROR2 ROR. And this antibody therapeutic had been developed against ROR1 for leukemia. And so it turns out that ROR1 get, is, a, is normally expressed in the fetus, um, but it can be upregulated. So the protein suddenly comes on in a number of cancers. First, it was discovered by Dr. Tom Kipps um, and the, the groups um, here at UC San Diego uh, to be upregulated in, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And then as a group, um, with Katrina Jameson, my sister, and Dennis Carson and Chuck uh, Charles Prusak, they developed this phenomenally um, uh, specific uh, and non-toxic sertuzumab antibody therapeutic, which they've already tested uh, in phase one clinical trials uh, and shown uh, some efficacy for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, and so now this has also been looked at in solid tumors, and it was found that some solid tumors can also upregulate or increase the amount of this uh, fetal or you know kind of stem cell uh, cancer stem cell protein. And so now there's uh, additional clinical trials for CLL and then at UCSD and a, a trial now started in uh, metastatic uh, breast cancer. And so from these you know incredible advances um, and working with Dr. Parsons and and and, Raina, and Dr. Marina McKay, um, you can see the energy that we have for this. Um, and so we have this unique ability and to look to take this very well-tolerated antibody therapeutic and apply it to um, prostate cancer, where its ligand, WIN5A, has been shown to be a key uh, signal that the, the cancer growing in the bone has now uh, reached an even more aggressive state. And so we uh, went, uh, we've now tested the sertuzumab in uh, very early stages. Uh, we did characterization of uh, you know, expression levels and all this kind of stuff to really identify what's the best place uh, where we're going to find, um, you know, responsive cells. And so we did a, a trial to mimic the clinical trial that Raina was, Dr. McKay was telling you about, where uh, we're going to treat with uh, sertuzumab and do a lead-in and then add in docetaxel and have both. So the, the trial here in the preclinical trial um, was to grow our uh, ROR1 positive um, model, patient-derived model from a bone metastatic prostate cancer. And uh, we treat half the mice with a, a control antibody and then half the mice with sertuzumab for two weeks and then start adding in docetaxel. And this is early results, but it's very promising. And what we see is that um, in this gray line and the blue line, there is a separation. And then uh, in the, uh, the tumor growth, which this was actually very large tumors. Um, so this is pretty phenomenal to, to see a difference. Um, and now when you start adding in the docetaxel, we were actually um, suppressed and arrested the growth compared to 
the uh, control treatment. So now we're going to repeat the experiment, refine it, uh, the dosing, um, and then in parallel, we're ready to go in patients. Um, so this antibody is uh, very non-toxic in all the patients that have been, uh, most of the patients that have been tested so far for other cancers. And now we know that in combination with docetaxel, there's some promising um, results if we are looking at uh, tumors that express the protein. Another really great, so I'm telling you like the latest data that we have in the lab, um, because it's so exciting, um, another product that's been developed at, um, by the same group um, is to use this wonderful antibody against Rora 1 and put it onto T-cells. And this is known as a combined antigen receptor T-cell. Now, T-cells are like the super uh, killers of the immune system. And so if you can load them up with uh, uh, an antibody that you know, can then recognize the protein on a tumor, um, this is one of the most potent ways to truly eradicate a tumor. And so now we've got these CAR T cells that have the Sermtuzumab antibody on the surface, and we uh, introduced those cells into mice that had tumors that are uh, prostate cancer tumors that express RUR1. And if you see here, the gray bars are the tumor sizes increasing in mice that only got control T cells, no antibody on the T cell. And then the blue bars, you can actually see the tumor start to shrink in mice that got um, the CAR T cells intravenously uh, at, the, uh, at an early time point. So this, again, is very, very promising. This is <laughs> really preliminary, but we're very excited about it. And I think this is going to be um, a tremendous um, uh, product uh, treatment um, for very aggressive form of uh, bone metastatic neuroendocrine type of prostate cancer. So we're very excited about this. I'll tell you very briefly, this is another uh, product that we used our um, patient-derived models to test um, an, an immune therapy. And so what this does is it's um, called a bispecific mo molecule, and it has one end which grabs onto the T cell and the other end which recognizes here the tumor cell, and here it's using PSMA, and it brings the, the killer T cell together with the tumor. And we tested that in our mouse model. Again, we had the tumors growing in the mice. And if you look at this lower graph, uh, you can see that the black line is just the tumor growing and it just it takes off. And then if you add the T cells without any, um, and anything to tie them to the tumor cells, the, it has no effect. But as soon as you put in this drug, this bispecific drug, you start, you see that the tumors shrink and go away. And then if we retreated the, the tumors, there were two mice uh, where the tumors started to regrow, the tumors shrank again. We can see the same thing in the bone. And so the bone is very resistant. It has so many growth uh, pathways and many, many different ways to, to keep these cells happy, the tumor cells happy, that this is phenomenal. Um, we see the blue line here, again, compared to all these controls, uh, the, the antibody, plus, the bispecific plus the T cells completely eradicated the tumor. So that treats, the ROR1 antibody treats ROR1 positive prostate cancer, um, which seems to be more neuroendocrine type. And this PSMA tar is targeting more of the adenocarcinoma. So uh, we've got these phenomenal therapies. And um, one of the things that I told you is that these were the clinical, preclinical uh, research uh, done 
partly in parallel, partly um, ahead of time, to um, to really uh, dovetail and justify and help understand uh, the um, help the, the clinical trials for these products. So as Dr. McKay mentioned, um, we have a sirtuzumab plus docetaxel trial for metastatic prostate cancer that is about to, you know, we're just <laughs> trying to get that one off the ground. We're all very excited. Everything's ready to go. There's just a couple more things to, to, go, to go back on. Um, that bi-specific that I was just telling you about that drags the T-cell over the, to the tumor so that it can kill the tumor cells, that is now in a clinical trial that um, Dr. McKay is the site PI for. And then we have two other clinical trials that I didn't mention, um, and one of them is this uh, PROSPAC active surveillance trial, which uh, Dr. Parsons is the PI of that we're very, very excited about. I just wanted to quickly say that we are also developing these in vitro models so that we can um, they're 3D cell culture models. They're basically mini tumors that we can generate in um, three dimensions, but in a culture dish straight from patient samples. So we take the patient sample, we dissociate the cells, and we suspend them in kind of like a jello mold uh, with all the factors that they could ever want, and then they grow into these mini tumors. And using these, we've established beautiful mini tumors that look just like the tumors in vivo, and we made uh, we've tested different things, and we um, kind of we became very interested in something where um, the uh, in our analysis of it, we found that the antiandrogens in these organoids were actually turning down two of the corona of the COVID nineteen or coronavirus or SARS CoV two uh, proteins that are required for the virus to enter. Um, and so when the virus binds, so this is, you know, not prostate cancer, but we're using these uh, in vitro models now to look, not just to be able to test the prostate cancer therapy, but also as a way to look at um, therapies for uh, un- unexpectedly for SARS-CoV-2. And the, the reason we can do this is that the SARS uh, virus, so we're not using virus, this is all just with uh, looking at the proteins themselves that bind. Uh, so it binds with one of those little spike proteins to its receptor on cells called ACE2, but it requires a cleavage. And that's done by this protein temper SS2, which is very famous in prostate cancer. It's part of a gene fusion that's in 50 to uh, at least 50% of prostate cancer patients, and it's regulated by androgen. And so what we found um, is that, uh, in, in summary, um, is that we can test therapies uh, not only for um, the entry, uh, for targeting prostate cancer using these uh, mini tumors that we can grow from every, the people in my lab are amazing. We can take these tissues, like the smallest amount of tissue that you can even imagine, um, and grow these organoids to uh, test for therapies. Um, we can also use these to test for SARS-CoV-2 therapies because these organoids, these three-dimensional, are much more representative of how this, the cells respond in, the, in, in us. Um, they actually give much more representative um, uh, responses. Uh, and so using these uh, patient samples that are we are so grateful to uh, have donated from the patients, we can st- um, study all these different um, uh, therapies uh, and hopefully you know we'll be 
we've already started moving them into the clinic because of these tremendous collaborations with uh, the Raina, Dr. Raina McKay and Dr. Kelly Parsons and Chris Kane and a whole huge team. And just before COVID, uh, this was all of us at a, a recent at a meeting in, in 2019. And hopefully we'll be doing this again in 2021. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Jameson, for that fantastic overview of work going on in the labs. I mean, really exciting to hear today everything from precision medicine, genomics for patients, and then hearing about the cancer stem cell side of things and how uh, research in the lab is really pushing, pushing the boundary to move, move these fields forward. So I will shift gears a little bit here because we're very honored today to have another special guest with us. Uh, this is Mr. Lenny Green, who's a patient of both, both Dr. McKay and Dr. Parsons, and he has an incredible story to share with us. We're so excited to be able to hear a patient's perspective here today, along with the exciting advances in prostate cancer uh, research and care. And I'd like to turn it over to Dr. McKay again for a brief minute, just to tell us a little bit more about Mr. Green before he shares his story with us. I had the privilege to actually meet um, Mr. Green through the Multi-D uh, Prostate Cancer Clinic. And actually he was uh, found to have a diagnosis of prostate cancer and did a lot of research and got plugged in to see my colleague and, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Parsons, um, who you have all met, who's just amazingly wonderful. And when he saw Dr. Parsons, Dr. Parsons was like, we need to get Mr. Green into multi-D uh, prostate cancer clinic for a uh, well-rounded kind of uh, thoughtful review of all of his imaging, um, all of his clinical parameters, um, genomics to really um, optimize, um, uh, you know, his care um, in the most thoughtful and personalized manner. And so we, we met Mr. Green in, in multi-D clinic and developed a personalized treatment plan for him um, moving forward. And um, it's been just exciting to see, um, just one, how amazing he's done and just his, his attitude and perseverance and resilience, um, and exciting to introduce him here to share his story with you. Cause it really is very moving. Thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure to, you know, be taking care of you. Thank you very much, Dr. McKay. It's really an honor to be here and to help contribute to, the overall science behind prostate cancer. I, I'm committed to do whatever I can now and in the future to help uh, other men who may be facing what, I, what I'm facing. Uh, early in February, I met with Dr. Parsons who reconfirmed a previous diagnosis of prostate cancer. I was lucky to bring my case to UCSD because I wanted to go where I believe the best care would be. And uh, after meeting with Dr. Parsons, he did suggest that the multi-D approach would be probably the most helpful. So uh, a month after I first met with Dr. Parsons, we got together with uh, Dr. McKay and Dr. Sandhu, our radiation oncologist, to talk about the case and uh, planned a, uh, to move forward with a plan which would begin with surgery, followed by radiation and then, um, you know, medicine supplied by, by Dr. McKay. And that was the plan. And as you say, sometimes all <laughs> the best laid plans sometimes are impacted. The beauty of the multi-D uh, approach was that Dr. McKay looked at my case holistically as she gained knowledge of me and my case and began to look at the scans and really just to get an understanding about my, my disease. In doing so, she identified a small spot on my lower left lung. And just in the spirit of being completely thorough, 
she decided, look, we need to find out what this is. It could be nothing or it could be something else, but we need to find out what this is before we really move forward. So it began to get some biopsies, additional scans. And ultimately what turned out uh, in mid-March was that the spot in my lung was another primary cancer, adenocarcinoma. And so that immediately stopped some of the progress on the prostate because we really needed to focus on what was taking place in the lung. But the one thing I want to point out is the multi-D approach really allowed us to, to begin the fight with the prostate by starting the uh, ADT therapy to begin the fight while I was dealing with, with the lung situation. So in April, uh, late April uh, this year, I had a lobectomy in my lower left lobe, uh, which was, you know, obviously very traumatic in its own right. And oh, by the way, COVID was taking place. Um, but the good news is, is that the, the, the tumor that was removed from me uh, had not spread and um, it allowed me to continue on and focus on uh, the fight with the prostate uh, disease. I, I do want to say that throughout my dealings with UCSD personnel, technicians, physicians, anesthesiologists, I could not have been and, and not, can't be more pleased with the care, the, the approach, uh, the professionalism. I feel like everywhere I've gone, I've made friends and, and because people genuinely care and it's been great. Um, the prostate cancer surgery then was scheduled for the end of June, which, which we, we went ahead and did. At the same time, the ADT therapy um, picked up with another, um, another medicine. So we were really hitting it from two sides, the ADT and the surgery. So the surgery took place again the end of June. Um, that proved to be successful as it could be with Dr. Parsons really doing a great job and, and you know, providing the best care he could. Um, that healing continued uh, all the way through uh, late October, and I began radiation therapy uh, November 5th, and I'm still in it. I've got about six treatments left, but I, I feel great. Um, I, you know, I've looked at this entire situation as one that if I can be in the best shape I can be, both, both mentally and physically, I'll be fit to fight. Um, and really one of the things that's, that's helped me get through this too is really focusing on gratitude and, and really being thankful for all my caregivers, all the people that are involved in my care. And I, I'm just so grateful again to be here today, but also to say that my experience at UCSD um, has been nothing short of, of excellent. And I, I look forward to continuing my treatment and praying for a great outcome. But um, I just want to live up to the expectations of my providers. And I think that's the most important thing. I feel that this is a mission that I'm on, but I don't want to let them down. And so um, constantly focusing on what I can do to please them and, and keeping fit and, and eating right and doing the things that I need to do to be in the best condition to fight. And so um, needless to say, I'm glad 2020 is going to be over. Um, and I'm looking forward to 2021 in terms of making progress additional progress uh, on my disease, but I am committed from this point forward to contribute to prostate cancer research, um, helping others understand it, and just trying to treat people how I would want to be treated in this case. And I know I speak for many cancer patients that are served by UCSD in expressing their extreme gratitude for the work that goes on behind the scenes to help make life easier for those of us that have been diagnosed, but also to help prevent it uh, from those that could possibly get it in the future. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, our, our goal is to cure you of 
not just one cancer, but two cancers. <laughs> and we're on the path to do that. So one day at a time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lenny, for sharing your story with us. I mean, really what an inspiration and, you know, the reminder to focus on gratitude and, and keeping up the fight is so important, you know, at the end of the year and especially this year. So, you know, we really, your, your story is an inspiration to all of us and especially myself being a researcher in the lab, like Dr. Jameson is, uh, you know, we don't get the opportunity to work with patients daily like Dr. McKay and Dr. Parsons do. And so to have these opportunities where we bring together uh, scientists and clinicians and patients, it really, you know, really reminds me of the importance of the work we're doing. And, you know, I think puts all the pieces together for us all to see that the progress that's being made and how much it means to patients. And, you know, we're really honored to be part of your, your care and your progress. So with that, I'll shift over to fielding some Q&A. So I'll go ahead and start. There was a question here uh, just about uh, neuroendocrine variation uh, of prostate cancer. So uh, Dr. Parsons, did you want to comment a little bit on, on what that variation is and how that affects bone cancer and bone marrow and PSA and prostate cancer? The short answer is that it's, a, it's an aggressive version um, of uh, of reg it's actually well said right there. It's an aggressive version of regular prostate cancer. And because it's aggressive, it sometimes requires additional treatments. And yes, um, it, interestingly enough, it, it tends to uh, occur um, when PSA levels aren't very high. So that is to say for folks who aren't as familiar with prostate cancer as a lot of other folks on the call, um, PSA is a blood test for prostate cancer. The higher the PSA is, um, uh, the more, in general, the more aggressive a prostate cancer is. Uh, but paradoxically, in some instances, uh, some folks uh, with aggressive prostate cancers have uh, very low, even normal levels of, of PSA. And the theory uh, is that these cancer cells are so unlike normal cells in the body um, that they're not making the PSA protein. Uh, and they sometimes require additional treatments and they can sometimes uh, spread into unusual places. And that's where I'll hand it over to, uh, to Dr. McKay to, to pick up with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're actually learning a lot more about advanced prostate cancer. As I stated, the, the, one of the only reasons that we know about this emergence of this neuroendocrine phenotype is because we're actually biopsying patients, looking at their cancers under the microscope and being able to see that, hey, these look different than the primary tumors. Um, and then we're sequencing those tumors and realizing, gosh, the molecular makeup of these tumors are very different. Um, and um, I think historically, we used to think that neuroendocrines were kind of separated from the adenocarcinomas or the regular prostate cancers. But what we're seeing is actually that they can oftentimes co-occur. Um, and may, some patients may not necessarily have a pure neuroendocrine prostate cancer. Now, the emergence of this is quite low. It's actually just probably about 10 to 15% of patients who have very advanced treatment refractory disease. So it's not a very common phenomena, but it can be one that can be tricky to treat. Um, we actually have several clinical 
trials that are designed for neuroendocrine prostate cancer. There's a clinical trial of immunotherapy that we're leading here um, at our institution that's currently open and accruing patients who have neuroendocrine differentiated prostate cancer. We're going to be bringing forth another trial actually in partnership with Duke University and the PCCTC called the CHAMPS trial um, that incorporates uh, immunotherapy with um, actually uh, chemotherapy. And actually that platform trial that I talked to you about, the PREDICT trial for um, prostate cancer actually does have a co that allows patients with neuroendocrine prostate cancer, which those individuals have historically been excluded from clinical trials and actually has a um, treatment arm of uh, a drug called a EZH2 inhibitor, which has shown promise um, for patients who have um, a molecular phenotype that is associated with neuroendocrine disease. So it's not a very common thing. I know it scares the bejesus out of patients when they hear the word neuroendocrine or what can emerge, or if I take this drug, I have the risk of developing that. I think the, the, it is, it's not a very common thing that happens. Um, uh, but it is something that we look for. And I think this is why it's important to biopsy along the way and sequence along the way. And, um, you know, sometimes these additional diagnostics, though they may be annoying, are actually um, helpful to um, better personalizing therapy. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. McKay. We're getting a couple more uh, questions kind of on this topic, if you guys want to kind of give quick answers to those. Uh, one is, uh, do neuroendocrine uh, prostate cancer still produce high level of PSMA? MA. I don't mind fielding that question. It's um, it's actually variable. Like I said, neuroendocrines t- tend to, the, the neuroendocrine cells tend to not express PSMA, but a lot of times neuroendocrine cancers co-occur with adenocarcinomas that do express PSMA. And so um, I think that there's actually a lot of what we call heterogeneity or you know, I like to always tell my patients the analogy of the gumball machine and there, your prostate cancer is like all of these different kinds of clones in there that are all molecularly distinct and they may all have a different sensitivity to any one given drug. And so there can be co-occurrence of both PSMA adenocarcinoma expressing PSMA, but also neuroendocrine. Obviously you treat to the more aggressive type, which is the neuroendocrine. I just wanted to echo Dr. McKay's point about the heterogeneity, and that's why um, getting uh, using these models where we get the patient samples uh, gives us much more accurate models for testing therapies. And so we see, you know, that some of the cells have PSMA and some of them have ROR1, for example, in this mixed uh, neuroendocrine adenocarcinoma. Very important. Great point, Dr. Jameson. So I, I missed, uh, did Dr. McKay want to comment on if prostate cancer is hormone dependent? So initially, most prostate cancers are hormone dependent. Um, and dropping down testosterone levels does result in improved outcomes. Um, but for people with advanced disease, um, at some point in time, a lot of those cancers do get resistant to therapy. Um, we don't know when that time is going to be. There's certainly an average, but... There's some men that can be hormone sensitive for decades and some men that become hormone resistant pretty early on. Great. So there were some questions kind of about uh, studies, clinical trials, who's eligible, uh, how can people become patient, uh, become clinical patients for trials uh, here at Moore's and maybe throughout throughout the state and country? What would you recommend for, for patients? Yeah, the, 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 it's an interesting thread of the questions, and I think it, 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 it seems to focus on a particular theme, which is how can I get into clinical trials? Uh, and, and I think that, uh, you know, we are one center 
uh, I think certainly one of the bigger ones in the region. I mean, to be fair, there are other uh, health systems in the region that also offer clinical trials. Uh, we offer uh, an entire variety of, of, of trials, uh, not just in prostate cancer, but other kinds of cancers that uh, Dr. McKay and I take care of, including kidney cancer and bladder cancer. Uh, and they are sponsored uh, both uh, by uh, the government, uh, like the National Cancer Institute and other nonprofit organizations, uh, as well as industry. So, um, uh, so uh, folks in, in the private sector who are developing uh, new uh, medications. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's, um, it's exciting to be a part of them. And it's, uh, it's exciting to be able to bring those kinds of uh, clinical trials to, uh, to patients. Um, along the lines in terms of UCSD, you know, there was a couple of questions. One coverage, for example, or one, one question, for example, about coverage, um, uh, UC, uh, UCSD insurance coverage. Um, I think that in, in general, um, it can be flexible in terms of folks coming for clinical trials. You know, for example, we do enroll Kaiser patients um, and, and patients from other uh, health system plans. And so those are conversations that you can have, um, you know, with, uh, uh, with our group in terms of planning uh, visits. Uh, another uh, question uh, from a gentleman about having seen um, a few of us uh, and how they uh, they become clinical patients for or clinical uh, uh, trials patients. Um, well, the, the first step is to is to see one of us in clinic uh, and to ask one of us about it uh, and uh, to see uh, what sorts of trials uh, you might be eligible for because not every patient is eligible for uh, every trial. There have to be very uh, specific rules uh, because the, the the first priority uh, is safety uh, and keeping folks uh, safe when we're um, evaluating them for, uh, for trials. Uh, Dr. McKay is one of the busiest uh, uh, clinical trialists uh, around. Uh, do you have anything uh, to add, Dr. McKay? No, I think it's, um, and some patients may not necessarily need a trial um, right at that yeah. point in time. And so I think um, it's all about having a great, you know, uh, you know, good therapeutic relationship with your doc who's taking care of you um, to make sure that you're always exploring every single option that could potentially be available when you need it. Sometimes you need it and sometimes you don't. Um, and so it's always just making sure that, um, you know, you're having those discussions and always, you know, my strategy is always, you know, um, obviously we're hopeful and we aim for the best, but always have a plan B, C, D, E in your back pocket with multiple, you know, um, strategies for tackling how um, the cancer may, you know, what may happen because um, there is some unpredictability to things. I know there's a lot on the chat. I know we got to probably wrap up soon, um, but I'm so excited. Um, there's a lot of discussion on the chat about um, PSMA imaging, um, and that's been a huge breakthrough over the last um, couple of, um, like, I think a week or two ago when the FDA approved the two um, uh, PSMA uh, strategies at UCLA and UCSF. Um, we are working with our nuclear medicine team and our uh, uh, radiology department through uh, the chair, Dr. Norbosh, to actually work on bringing that reality here. There's actually a small molecule PSMA um, that doesn't necessarily require somebody to have a cyclotron on site um, uh, that will likely get FDA approved within the next six months. And I think this is gonna be a, a reality for our patients um, here. So um, we're excited to be able to, to bring that to you soon. Well, the, the only thing I would add to that is I am absolutely just as thrilled as Dr. McKay to bring that technology. Uh, I read the New York Times piece and by Gina Collada, who's an outstanding uh, health writer, has been for years there. And there was great enthusiasm, And but I always tell folks, 
um, it's not necessarily going to be the right way forward for every single patient. Uh, and every time a new technology uh, comes out, absolutely, we're all excited about it. We're all excited about bringing it to, to folks and our patients, uh, but it's not going to be the right fit for, uh, for everybody. Thank you so much, Dr. Parsons, Dr. McKay. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up now. Just want to thank our exceptional panelists today. Just really wonderful presentations by Dr. McKay, Dr. Parsons, Dr. Jameson, and of course, our special guest, patient Lenny Green. We'll see you soon. And thank you again so much for joining us today.